Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks, Dr. Bill. It's good to be back with you this week, and thanks so much for choosing to spend some time with us. Special thanks to the Salem Media Network for distributing this program, and Lance, who's engineering today uh, the show. Uh, Many of you who listen to this program are fans of biographies, and so am I. We all love a good story, and there's more to it, though, than just the story. Biographies aren't just interesting, but if you read them with an open heart and an open mind, you learn things about other people, and you wind up then learning things about yourself. Um, My mom used to talk about how all the wisdom in the world was available to you with a library card. Well, there's shows like this where you sit down and we talk with some of the most fascinating people, and you don't even need a library card. You just need a radio or a uh, uh, somewhere to get a podcast. Uh, we're now in the fourth month of this show, and our guest today, Mrs. Gloria Gaither, has been mentioned by two of our previous guests, recent guests, in fact, Andy Andrews and Jeff Allen. So I was excited to have her on. Gloria is a singer, songwriter, author, teacher, poet, a wife. She's a mom, a grandma. Uh, she has all kinds of honors and has won all kinds of awards, including being called, along with her husband, Bill, the Christian songwriter of the century. That's quite a title. They... Uh, Kind of stopped counting the number of songs they wrote at 700. It has to be closer to 800 or more now. They're still performing. They have a slate of concerts on the docket for this fall and Christmas concerts too, Christmas shows. Uh, Gloria, it is an honor to have you on What a Life. Well, it's an honor to be with you, and I'm excited to have this talk. Thank you for um, arranging my schedule so I could do it. Thank you. Oh, well, it's an honor and a privilege. And I I want to start out here. What is it like uh, for you to drive on the Gaither Highway. I mean, formerly known as Indiana <laughs> State Road 28. That must... What, what? Well, you know, I told the state governor when he was here that I had kind of hoped for a north-south highway instead because I'm from Michigan. <laughs> so, but, but that was taken by the past Indiana governors, I think. It's, a, it's the governor's highway, so I couldn't compete with that. Oh, well... <laughs> Perhaps an upgrade is in your future. You never know. <laughs> you you mentioned Michigan. Obviously, you're in Indiana now, um, but you grew up in Battle Creek, Michigan. Um, what was your childhood like? You had a mom, your father, who's a you're a pastor's kid, right? Yeah, I was a pastor's kid, <clears throat> and uh, my dad pastored in a little tiny town of about 350 people, just south of Battle Creek, for the first. 10 years from the time I was four until I was 14, and then um, moved to uh, Claire, Michigan, which is kind of, if you're from Michigan, you hold up your hand and say, I'm from there, and you point to the middle of the mitten. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, so we, I went to high school in Claire, and then my father moved back to actually Battle Creek. So I've been in that area, you know, my whole life. Um, I have a, I had one sister, 10 years older, and we were very close, unusually um, I think for siblings that are that far apart in age, but I was kind of her show and tell when I was little. So I, she would take me to school or let me hang out with all of her teenage friends when I was just a little kid. <clears throat> and um, uh, my family life was 
I look back and say it was it was beautifully common, and now that is very uncommon. Mm. Um, we it was of course we lived our life around the church because Daddy was pastor, <clears throat> and in that you know in a small town you don't have any days off. There's no such thing for a pastor, and he was a hands-on pastor and um, was the kind of pastor that called on people not necessarily people in our church, anybody that was sick or had a problem or had a need or had a tragedy, you know, daddy was there. Mm. I'm sure so, that, yeah, it touched um, you. Uh, that is a big influence in your life to see. my that. life, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where where does music come in as a child? Did, was was there a lot of music in your home, uh, radio, piano? Well, I took accordion lessons when I was probably uh, nine or ten, and for for a couple of years, and I didn't like it. I um, I I liked music. I always liked music, and I sang it uh, with my sister sometimes. And I learned to play in six flats on the piano, my own my own version of piano. But I took music in, in accordion, and I I didn't like it so much that I uh, would set the clock and and practice for 30 minutes so that I wouldn't have to practice one single minute later than my 30 minutes. My my, um, accordion teacher loaned me her beautiful accordion to to practice on until my accordion came in, and I threw up in the bellows of her (laughs) accordion. That's how much I loved it. Wow! And that was a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> that that you're you're communicating a lot with that act right there. <laughs> oh boy! So um, in high school, were you in a choir? Were you in a in a orchestra or anything? My my life was built around words. <clears throat> my mother was a writer. My mother was a speaker. She wrote for the. Uh, publications of our church headquarters. She was um, creative to the bone. She wrote and directed all the plays that we ever did in our church. She created the stage and the background, and she was an artist and painter. Um, So I grew up around words more than anything. Mm. Um, and, And, of course, music is always a part of a kid's life if you're in the church. But I was not a musician, but I was drawn to writing much more than, and I, I never was drawn to writing the music. Um, I married Bill on the way to Africa, I thought. I had studied to be a missionary, and I took, uh, I was a major in French and sociology. And then I also told God, you won't mind if I do something I love, and I majored in English. So I had three majors, and... um and I loved them all. I was I was drawn to them all. But I took the French because I thought if God sent me to Africa, I would have um, the base language for a lot of the African colonization, in, and I, and I would have you know a way to learn languages better. Yeah. What a, what a remarkable upbringing. I mean, to have a father who's a pastor and a mother who is uh, a wordy woman. I mean, that just laid the foundation for you and then to pick this the majors you did did you have a dream as a kid i mean did you were you thinking mission field even as a young girl or did you have i remember hearing somewhere you wanted to kind of be the first barbara walters of course there was no barbara (laughs) walters back then but what were you thinking as a teenager well um 
that that statement came because I was I was entered in speech contests by an English teacher. Our high school did not even have forensics. I didn't know what that word meant when I was a freshman in high school. But my teacher recognized a gift she thought I had and began to enter me in regional and local and then finally state speech contests. And I won the Michigan um, State Speech Contest in the I Speak for Democracy um, uh, contest. The year I, I wrote the speech, they changed the title to My True Security. But that was just that one year, and then they switched it back to I Speak for Democracy. But I went to Washington. That was the first time I was ever on a plane, the first time I stayed in a real hotel, because we were pastors. We couldn't afford a hotel. Mm. Um, and then um, the, our group of state winners uh, did several things, including meeting President Eisenhower and going to his office. And the, they took the top 10 win, um, contestants of that uh, of that contest, and we got to meet Eisenhower, which was a great moment for me. It still is, looking back, um, what a privilege that was. So anyway, um, that I was offered scholarships because of that in um, in speech and um, forensics, and I considered them, but I um, I ended up yielding to a bigger. I guess, calling for me, and that was to be in full-time service of some kind for Jesus. Mm. And I, so I chose to go to Anderson University instead and majored in, as I said, English, sociology, and French. I think we call that overachieving when you have three majors in college. Maybe a little overachieving, but I mean, what an ambitious woman you are. We're talking with Gloria Gaither. She is the legendary singer-songwriter, obviously a duo with her husband, Bill, of more than 60 years. I'm Paul Batura, and you're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. But wow, to be in the Oval Office as a high schooler, almost college student, meeting President Eisenhower, uh, little did you know that you'd grow up to perform for presidents. Yes, it was a... a it's certainly, <laughs> I think if God showed you what your life would entail, we would all, you know, we would all quit for fear. <laughs> yeah. Well, you... But um, it, it it unfolds a piece at a time, and that was that was an influential moment for me. And my um, my direction in college then, um, it gave me it gave me a wide. Um, how can I say, a, a, right, a wide base for life. I am grieved to the bone that so many colleges are, are um, dwindling or, or eliminating their liberal arts core. I think it's so important for us um, to send our kids to a school where they learn widely in those first two years. They have to take some history, and they have to take English, and they have to take some math. They have to take some science, and they... And and to get rid of all that and just focus on technology, I think, is a drastic mistake because we so need people who know life, mm. not necessarily who know a skill. Yeah, you've mentioned that you think songwriters in particular should be well-read, should read literature, lots of classic literature. Why? Why is that? 
Well, because for one thing, you need to get used to 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 the language. The language has music, and and to even just speak Shakespeare knew that that English, American English, and and British English is in primarily iambic pentameter. We speak in iambic meter. And if you listen to language, go to a playground, go to a, you know, a coffee shop, go to a cafe sometime in the morning, just listen to the conversation. And the conversation, including the one we're just having, is mostly da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, which is called iambic. So there is a rhythm and a music to the language without music. Mm. Um, the the sad thing is that so many songwriters now are just are just putting out phrases out there, and they don't realize or they don't pay attention to the fact that music has meter, and language have meet, has meter, and they need to match. Hmm. Yeah, you've you ta- can't you can't fight a you know you can't fight against the wrong music. For the for another for a lyric that should fit some other music, yeah, or just ignore, um, or ignore words that should fit the the music that you're trying to write. Yeah, you're not a so, you're not a big critic. I mean, you you encourage musicians, and you're kind of known for that. But you've also talked about what you call as the praise craze that you see unfolding, and it's not always a good thing. I mean, praise is always a good thing. But when you refer to the praise craze, what are you referring to? First of all, let me say, I, you know, praise is so much a part of our lives, and it is the victory of our lives, that we constantly are grateful, that we live with gratitude, and that we see every moment and the, and the things that are happening in our lives as miracles enough. I think so often we stumble over miracles asking God for miracles. And we miss it just because we're, we, aren't, we aren't looking, we're not paying hmm. attention. And I think if you pay attention, it makes you come to your knees in gratitude. So praise is, is important, and, and I've probably met, written more praise songs than anything else when, when you, if you look at the lyrics. <clears throat> what I'm talking about is people that just get together as a committee in a room and throw out lines, main, mainly lines we have stolen from poor old David. Too bad he didn't have <laughs> copyrights. <laughs> and 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 throw them together, and you know, with some kind of uh, music. And sadly, I think the music is not being studied either. Um, we have so many chords and so many possibilities for melodies. And it, it, to me, it's such a shame that we settle so for so little, mm. like three or four popular chords done over and over, and phrases that we steal from David. And my sadness is we don't even know David's story. Um, I ask in a room full of uh, supposed songwriters, <clears throat> the, uh, at um, Dove Awards Week, uh, the GMA Week in, in Nashville, they, um, <clears throat> sorry, Mark Lowry and I were asked to do a session with, for, for that week. And um, I walked into the room and, and I said, first of all, I'd like to know who's in the audience. I always like to know who, who 
to whom I'm speaking. And, and there were probably about 300 people in the room. And I said, I'd like to know how many of you write, promote, um, market, or sing primarily what is called praise and worship music. And almost all the hands went up. Mm. And I said, I, I love that you love praise and that you love worship. Now let me ask you this. For how many of you who use the Psalms as your base or how many of you have you read First and Second Samuel in the last three years? Mm. Convicting and question. There were probably three hesitant hands that went up. Mm. And you know, my next my next question is: How dare you steal the punchlines of David when you don't even know his story? Wow, wow. And let me let me read from your blog. This line jumped out at me. This was you have a great blog. Um, love songs to my life. If people are listening and want to subscribe, you just sort of every week have a, a kind of a profound thought. And uh, you, on this topic of sorts, you wrote great songs, great literature, and great art all take layer after layer of deep study, life experiences, both hard and beautiful, and skillful discipline. This is sort of what you're referring to, isn't it? Exactly, yes. <clears throat> and poetry is a science. It's a science of language. So that's why I said we must read a lot of poetry. Um, I, I would recommend in, in Christian writing, whether it's gospel or hymns, that, that we read widely in the 19th century poetry because it is, um, it's a poetry full of emotion, uh, of sensitivities to nature, and to people and to our surroundings. And it is also metered so that you can learn the rhythm of the language. And there are lots of rhythms. And those are, those are called, you know, figures of speech and rhyme schemes. And, and the rhythms may be like da 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 Okay, then you know that you got a 3-4 or a 4-4 or a 6-8 time signature in your language. And it has to find a mate in music. Or if you're writing to music, if somebody gives you music, you have to listen to the meter of the music. And out of that music will speak phrases that match the music, that don't fight against the music. So that's why I'm saying, you know, read widely with great literature. And the other thing is, it gives you a wide vocabulary. Um, I think we are really sadly missing the right word. Most of the most of the time, we don't we don't use the exact word that we that we mean. And I don't mean complicated words. I mean they may be simple words, and probably are simple words but the right word, mm. not an almost right yeah. word. And that comes from reading a lot and getting a wide vocabulary so those words are natural to you. And you can put that skill in your back pocket and pull it out any time you know, that you're writing, um, whether you're writing a news piece or whether you're writing an essay or whether you're writing um, a, a song or a letter to somebody. I mean, if, are you writing a text? 
texts are the worst because we've got to have the right word or you, you can't see people's faces. You can't recognize their facial expressions. You can't see their body language. So all you have is the word. And if it's not the right word, then you're going to communicate a message you didn't mean. Mm. And that's why there's so much anger on the Internet. Mm, that's true. You know, I, as you're talking, I was reminded I for 10 years I had the privilege of assisting a friend of yours, Dr. James Dobson, uh, on his work, his books and writing and broadcasts. And every once in a while, maybe every month when he would write a letter, there'd be a word that I didn't really quite know. And I would, you know, ask him about it. And he'd say, oh, I just like to throw in one of those words every once in a while that, you know, to expand people's vocabularies, you know, that kind of push you to look it up and to to uh, expand your horizons, so to speak. Um this is Gloria um, Gaither. I'm Paul Batura, and this is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Um, Mrs. Gaither, I want to ask about the big moment for you to have taken a job teaching uh, at a high school. It was, um, uh, the high school was called, what's the name of the high school you were at? You were at Alexandria Monroe High School, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's where you met Bill. So can you tell us about that? How did, how did was it love at first sight? Was it... Uh, Uh, A slow grow kind of a thing, or how did that all go down? Well, I was a junior in college. I was 19, and um, the French teacher in Alexandria High School had cancer, and she was out for six weeks at the beginning of the second semester. My, My professor, my French professor came in and asked me if I would agree to take her classes in between my classes, her French classes. And um, the French teacher uh, was offering her car, which I had to walk from the college to her house, get her car, drive to Alexandria, teach her classes, and then drive back and walk back to the college, which in January, I mentioned that because <laughs> it was so cold yeah. that I, I remember freezing to death going, you know, doing that every day. But, um, so I agreed to do that, and when um, I had a friend in college that loved Southern gospel music, um, I was from Michigan, so I didn't grow up with Southern gospel music. I knew all the songs that made their way to the church from that genre, and you know, sang many of them that were quartet songs, you know, that had made their way to to their our our general usage. But I was not, I did not know much about Southern gospel music in general, but she did. She was a big fan and she went home to Detroit for the weekend and uh, over Christmas break and she had gone to an all night singing and she came back and she, she was a big fan of JKS. And at that time I didn't know who that was. (laughs) And she said, Oh, I heard this incredible trio and, and, and they, they, Open for the statesman, and she said, "I, I, the, 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 there's a guy in there. I just, oh, I'd love to meet. I just think he's so handsome, and he's such an amazing singer. He sounds just like Jay Cass." And I said, "Oh, really?" And she, she said, "Yes." And his brother is teaching where you just agreed to go teach. You've got to meet him and get me a date with his brother. <laughs> so it was Danny that she saw. Danny gave it. So I sort of put that in my back pocket, but um, I was walking down the hall one day uh, after I started substituting in French, and um, 
Bill was walking down the hall in the opposite direction and pretended to drop his pencil in front of me. (laughs) And I thought, this is really corny. And he looked up and said, picked up his pencil and looked up and said, hi, I'm Bill Gaither. Who are you? And I said, Gloria Sickle. And I said, oh, yeah, Bill Gaither. I have a friend that wants to meet your brother. (laughs) And his answer was, that's the story of my life. Everybody, all of (laughs) the girls want to meet my brother. (laughs) Oh, that's great. So, you, so you, I never humility. got around to yeah. introducing them, but um, Bill and I started going out to lunch, and you know the rest is history. Wow, we're we're talking with Gloria Gaither. She's the uh, legendary singer songwriter, uh, songwriter of the century, along with her husband uh, Bill. You know them from their homecoming uh, concerts and the many many records and songs that they've produced over the years. Uh, when we come back, there's a lot more to dig into. We're uh, now just kind of only 20 years into her life. But uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, after these few commercials, we'll be back with uh, Mrs. Gloria Gaither. Well, welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. We're talking with the legendary singer-songwriter Gloria Gaither. And uh, in our conversation so far, um, Gloria, you've just met Bill. He dropped a pencil in front of you, he picked it up, <laughs> introduced himself, and off to the races. Obviously, you were married in 1962. Is that right? Right. It was. Um, we were married in, at Christmas it, before I graduated from college. I had another semester of college to go, and um, and I had to student teach after I had taught for real. So, so I got a good dose of what it would feel like to be in the classroom. Yeah. So you mentioned that when you met him and and you began you didn't join his singing right away but that when you did you sort of reframed his mindset from being in the quote music business to being in music ministry. Um how do you explain that? Well, first of all, Bill had written um a few songs. I I don't know how many. I'm saying 10 or 12 songs that had been uh published um by the Spear Company uh, before I met Bill. And actually, we were kind of getting serious with each other, and he and I went, his, his parents lived in Alexandria, so he invited me home for the weekend from college. And he, uh, one night we came back from uh, dinner, and he said, uh, I'd like to play you some things. And so he played a couple songs, and, and uh, I said, those are pretty good. Those are good. <laughs> and he said, I wrote them. And I, so he was trying to see if I was going to, yeah. I was going to be okay with what he wrote. And if I remember, they, the, they were, I've been to Calvary was one and the joy of serving the Lord was one. Both had been recorded by uh, the Spear family, I think. And um, so, anyway, that's how he told me that he was interested in in that. We had we our dating. We had we had gotten um, really in to know each other, discussing literature. He taught English, and of course, I had an English major too. And and politics. Barry Goldwater was running for president that year. And and the Lord, and you know how our our spiritual life and philosophical life so music was not what we discussed until then and then um he even then he was writing a song and i would give him 
a phrase or two, or he's like, I don't know what to say here. Or can you know what? Here's the chorus. You know, what? Where should I go with this? You know, um, lyrically. So we we did a few songs that I just kind of gave him ideas on before we were married. So it wasn't a professional marriage. I mean, we didn't. He wasn't auditioning for a piano player or something. Sure. So you're you're talking about uh, music just coming naturally um, as an outgrowth of your the, the loves of your life, the, obviously your love of with each other. Um, the piano in your family room or wherever you have it is kind of this long-standing, iconic piece of furniture that you've created. So many of the wonderful songs that we know and love. What's the history of that piano? Like, when did you get it? When did uh, when did that first come into your family's life? Well, that is our second grand piano since we've been married. We had a little, um, like a little upright um, spin-up piano in the rented house. We rented a little house next door to Bill and Bill's mom and dad um, from them when we were when we were first married. And actually, he wrote he touched me in that house, and we wrote we wrote several other songs in that little rented house on that upright spinet. Um, he touched me. Uh, Bill was playing for a revival with Dale Oldham, which was the radio voice of the Church of God at that time, and his son, De- um, he was pray- playing for Doug Oldham that was doing the music for the revival. <clears throat> and Dale was an amazing orator and a, an amazing speaker. And on the way home from that that night, driving, I forget it was in um, in, in northern Indiana, they were is where they were, uh, he was speaking that night. He told Bill, he said, Bill, you should write a song with the word touch in it. He said, everybody needs to be touched. And he says, so many people are not touched. Mm. This is Gloria Gaither, the singer-songwriter, part of the duo of Bill and Gloria Gaither. Um, That that really shows your humility, Gloria, to be able to say that, uh, you know, that he, glad he didn't take my advice. A lot of people would would be a bit frustrated by that, but that's interesting to see how the husband wife can work together and sometimes accept uh, recommendations and other times not. Um, you talk about it all starts with the idea and you have something called the hook books, right? That you've kept over the years. These are right. Tell us about those. Yeah, how many do we, you have? You know, when I'm teaching songwriting, uh, my assignment, my first assignment on the first day is I want you to go to, uh, an emergency room at at midnight in your local hospital, and just sit in a waiting room hmm. and listen. I want you to go to a cafe and and sit in a booth and listen. And and I've even said I want you to go to a bar. I don't want you to drink there, but I want <laughs> you to listen to the conversations. I want you to hear the world around you, and I want you to come back tomorrow with ten hooks. Ten phrases that somebody said. Uh, one of the places might be a, a place where people go to apply for um, um, uh, some kind of aid, like an aid office, a, a mm-hmm. government aid office. I, I want you to get out there and I want you to come back and give me ten phrases that people you overheard people say. And I'm, I think a great one is you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille, with with five hungry kids and a and a crop in the field. Okay, 
that is the language of life. And if that mm-hmm. is not a drama, if that is not a so- song hook, I don't know what is. Wow. That's so great. And, that reminds me of the... And it was, I'm sorry. exactly what somebody heard. Yeah. Somebody say, you know, he evidently had, his wife didn't come home. She was at a bar someplace and he went to find her and he saw her, you know, sitting on a bar stool talking to somebody else. And that's what he said to her. Okay. That's a story. You can be on an airplane, an airplane, uh, waiting to get on board an airplane. It's a great place to hear lines, mm. but, but you've got to hear the, the the passions of life, just people's life. And if you don't hear them, then then you're just not listening. Mm-hmm. You know, you, they're just everywhere. And sometimes it's in a sermon. Sometimes it's in a prayer. You hear somebody pray and you think, oh, wow, that is a great line. I'm, I'm going to remember that. Well, we have this little book. We write those down. And we might not write the song right then. We might not write it for five years. And then it might be 10 years after that that anybody records it. But but great songs come out of regular life. Mm. And things children say, things old people say, things teenagers say. You know, the world is full of stories. And it's our job to hear those lines and and then write, you know, because he lives that was that was such a that song was so personal that we thought it was just for us. And that that's that famous song came out of the birth of your son Benjamin, right? Right. He was our third son and he was born in in July of 70, but we had just been coming through the 60s. I you know, I was a college kid in the in 60 Three, I graduated, so I was a kid of the '60s, and then we lived through that turbulent age. And by the time um, Benji came along, I mean it was very much like the summer we had two summers ago, with you know all the burning down the cities and all the anger and the racial tensions. Um, in that time, in in '69, the Watts had burned to the ground in Los Angeles. Mm. Um, college pres- college professors were giving LSD to their students as a spiritual experience, and, and, and the drug culture had just begun, and it was shaking its way down to the core of high schools and colleges. And we would look, Bill and I would look at each other when we discovered we were pregnant for this third baby. We already had a tiny baby, three months old, and a two-year-old, and and we said, who in their right mind would bring another baby into the world at this time? And it was, we were really questioning, like, like what is the world going to be when this little guy has to face it? And I think every parent has said that. They've, you've, you've just wondered how you're going to help your kids navigate this world. Aren't you asking that right now? Mm. And, and the... There are several things that happen in the story of the full story of it is in uh, my book called Something Beautiful. But out of over those over those months, when when they handed Benji to me and I held him in my arms, it was like an aha moment. It was like you don't have babies and pay your rent 
and go on with your life and fix meals and you do what you do because the world is stable. When has the world ever been stable? Good point, yeah. You know, and, and Jesus himself was born into the most unstable of worlds with the Roman Empire killing every two-year-old, um, you know, because they got a rumor that Jesus was born. And they were after trying to kill him. They were trying to kill him. Yeah, killed all the babies. I mean, think about living in that world. Mm. And I, but but we looked at each other and we said, you know, we don't have a ba- we don't have this baby because the world is stable. We can face tomorrow with this baby because the resurrection is true. And it's not just a one-time shot in history. The resurrection is built into the very core of everything. Every spring is resurrection. Every changed life is resurrection. You know, every apple you eat is a result of a, a bud that blossomed and, and made it through a winter. Yeah. And, and so we said, you know, because he lives, we can face tomorrow, not because the world is stable. That's, this is Gloria Gaither. She's the uh, uh, wife of Bill Gaither from uh, the famous singing duo. And uh, Gloria, uh, how did the homecoming event come about? <laughs> By accident. <clears throat> Actually, the vocal band um, had been singing quite a while. They they, they started uh, two, the, two guys in our backup vocals. There were four backup vocals, two women and two men. And and then by that time, Gary McSpadden was in the trio with Bill and me. And um, those two guys, Bill and Gary, and the two guys in the vocal group had gotten together and and sung, um, Where Can I Go But To The Lord or something. No, that wasn't it. Anyway, some song they, they did. Um, and they said, oh, that was fun. Let's do it on the second half. And that's how the vocal band was mm. born. And so the vocal band was just a part of the trio concert. They did a song, then they did two more, and then Bill got such a kick out of the four-part harmony, which he loves. <clears throat> and so, but but the vocal band itself, it, they couldn't they couldn't seem to find an identity. The record company tried to shape them as more of a contemporary group, and and they did an album that was more in that that kind of vernacular and they couldn't hardly give it away and they they were amazing everybody loved them on the concert but it was on the trio concert and we'd been singing for you know 20 years by then and so um in frustration i think bill said you know i don't know i think we may just hang it up wow but he said, before we do, um, Mark was in the group then, and Michael English was in the group. And he said, before we do, both of them had come had come to music from the Southern Gospel music. They both loved it. Michael had actually sung as a teenager with the Goodmans when one of them was out for a season. So, so um, they, he said, let's bring in all the all these old people that brought us to the party Hmm. and let's say thank you to them. Let's just get together in a studio and let's all record, uh, where can I go? But to the Lord was the song they were going to do. And he said, we'll get some chicken brought in and we'll just have a good time. And, and he said, let's do a a whole Southern gospel flavored album. And they were going to bring these people in for one song on that album. 
And that day, <clears throat> Bill was like a kid in the candy store because he had all of the heroes of his life in that same room. Mm. And he would say, oh, play this one. And he knew all their repertoire. He knew every song every one of them sang. And and um, and it just turned into a six-hour holy hootenanny. Oh, wow. Uh, they they did record the one song, but the camera was running, and video camera was running, and the audio cam- audio equipment was running, but there was no plan or anything, no lighting for it. It was just a technical nightmare. Um, but when they got all done um, and got their song, he asked the record company what they were going to do with the rest of that tape. And they said, nothing, we're going to throw it away as soon as we get our cuts. And we, they were just going to cut, you know, them singing around the piano and, and cuts of them eating chicken and, you know, and cut them into this, the recording of the song. And they were going to do just a video of that one song for, for television uh, stations that just, you know, did, um, did just like song at a time. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> They said, we're going to throw it away. And he said, can I have it? And he took that six hours of tape and went over to Anderson University with Don Boggs at the video bay and said, help me edit this down. And they edited it down to about 90 minutes out of that six hours. And when people were walking in front of the camera or something, you know, was happening visually, he would insert record jackets that he had in his he had a whole you know archive of pictures of these groups when they were in their crime all their album covers that they ever recorded and you know he did put things like that in where he had to cut away from the video and he put it together and he brought it home and he played it for us for the kids and me and and he and he said, I want you to watch this and see what you think. And we were in tears. We said, this is so gut real. Mm. This is just raw. This is raw worship that just happened. And and a lot of those people were, you know, they like Jake had gone, you know, basically to, to live near his daughter because he had so many Thing cancer and things, so many things wrong with his body, and Larry Gatlin dropped by that day because he was going into Vanderbilt the next day to have nodules removed his vocal cords, and they told him they didn't know if he'd have a voice mm. when he came out or not. They couldn't guarantee that. Um, so Vessel, of course, Vessel changed his diapers when he was a kid. Wow. And and he said, Vessel, would you pray for me? She said, I've been through drug rehab, and he had he'd he'd gotten clean, and he'd gotten back to the Lord, and and he said, May now that I'm clean, maybe I'll lose my voice. And so she prayed and bossed God around like she did, and quoted scriptures to God and told him he needed to do something about. Hilarious. Yeah. And it was just one, it was stuff like that on that, that, that happened that day. Wow. Wow. So he called, um, uh, TBN at that point or, uh, CBN at that point, And they were looking for programming. And he said, would you want to run this and just see, so there gotta be other people out there that remember these people. And he said, if, if uh, we'll print it in, it was VHS. He said, we'll print it in VHS. And if, 
anybody calls in for it, you keep half of the money for your time for the station, and and I'll keep the rest to pay Don Boggs at at the video lab. And the phone rang off the hook. Mm. And every day, this is strange, it would be, I don't know what the number was, but let's say there were 823 calls or something. But day after day, it was the same number. And and my son-in-law, Barry Jennings, said, you know what this means? It means that you have gotten to the capacity of their ability to, to take calls. Wow. You struck a nerve. You don't know, yeah. You don't know how many called because you're maxing them out every day at the same number. And so he went to the record company again and said, you know, would you like to do, would you like to tape an, another one? And they said, oh, they said, we think that's the saturation level of this music. Nobody cares about this music anymore. And he said, you sold uh, whatever, 40,000 or whatever it was of total pieces. And he said, um, that, uh, we don't think there's any more sales out there. Boy, talk about being and wrong so, on that. So Bill said, well, then I'll do it myself. So that was the second one. And that one I went to. The first one I wasn't there because it was just a recording session for vocal band. But the second one I did, and um, that the first one was Homecoming, and then he did Turn Your Radio On, and they it just kept building and building, and the rest is history. It was totally accidental, and all those older people that had physical things wrong with them resurrected and went on the road with us Wow! and the homecoming thing. And we ended up going into the same basketball arenas that the trio had been in, you know, in our prime and the homecoming thing filled those buildings. Mm. Wow. Gloria, what a wonderful uh, story. And what a, what a, uh, what a wonderful thing to hear this from you. You've lived it and um, it's inspirational um, in our closing moment here, I just, I think I know how you, you might answer this, but when all is said and done, how do you want to be remembered? I think I want to be remembered as a person who asked the question, is there any eternity in it? In all the moments that we have and all the things I've learned from keeping a journal that the things that I thought were a big deal, you know, that you wrote down, like a Dove Award or a Grammy or a you know, party that you went to celebrate some, you know, honor something, you know, you, you, you look back over your journal and the things that I almost didn't write down because they were so regular, like my great big bulky teenage boys coming home and wanting to slide down their hillside in the snow on their slides. And, you know, and I, I look at all those things that I almost didn't write down because I thought, well, that, you know, it's not that important, but I did because I keep a journal Mm. and it teach, it taught me that the things that matter are the things with eternity in it, not the awards, Mm. not any of that stuff. What, matters is relationships, how people love each other as they grow and mature and change, how you walk with each other through really hard times, 
where sometimes around the fire of our kitchen it has been joyful and laughter, and sometimes it's been tears. Sometimes it's been anger. Sometimes it's been problems we had to work through. And at the end of the day, you say, okay, I'm, I'm exhausted from everything I did today. Did anything happen that had any eternity in it? Mm. And our job is to recognize eternity here, not think about heaven as some far off place someday when everything's going to be right. No, if we can't do relationships here, if we can't recognize what is eternal here, then we're going to have about a thousand years, you know, wake up, mm. wake up call when we get to heaven because we won't know what to do with it. Yeah. Well, that's, that is good, good word and a good place to land. I know you've said eternity is not someday. Eternity begins now, right? And, eternity uh, is here. Yeah. Well, Gloria Gaither, thank you for joining us. And uh, there's so much more uh, to talk about, but we'll have to save it for another time. Your, your blog, uh, for those who want to get a hold of you, um, what's the website again? It's just love song to my life, one word, dot com. And then your music, of course, Gaither, Gaither Music uh, Gaither also. Gaither Music, yes, yeah. you can go on Gaither Music. And uh, it's Gaither Music Facebook. It's on lots of other platforms and um, anything that anything that you go to YouTube, any of those, uh, you'll find it. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life.